1: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. You
2: can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.
0: This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. Joining me now, and and I'm I'm really looking forward to this segment because I have to mouth off on a couple of things myself, Uh, one of our regulars on this show as well as on our PBS national show called The Travel Detective, the travel editor of The Wall Street Journal, Mr. Scott McCartney. Hey, Scott. Hi, Peter. You just did a piece recently, and, and I'd love to expand on it, called Six Ways to Improve Air Travel Instantly. I love that word, instantly, when it's attached to the word improve air travel. Uh, but I want to suggest one to you that I talked about on the show last week, but it bears repeating because I caught the TSA in a big lie that could be improved right away, right? It could be changed. And here's the lie: I was recently at the airport in Miami, uh, going on an international flight, and I got to the security line, and I waited uh, 11 minutes to get just to the to the agent to check my uh, you know boarding pass and and government ID. Uh-huh. And then I waited another 17 minutes to actually get to you know, the conveyor belt to put my carry-on bag on. <laughs> yep. And guess what I learned? I learned that according to the TSA, I had only waited in line 11 minutes. <laughs> now let's see how they came up with that. I went back and checked. They're fudging the numbers, and they're changing the definition of line. Because their determination of your wait time is based on how much time you waited just to get to the guy to check your documents, not how long it took you to get through security. That's misleading, that's wrong, and it's a lie. And and I didn't wait 11 minutes, I waited 27 minutes. So for those people who are walking around with those little apps that are telling you from the TSA what your estimated wait time is, they're all lies.
3: Well, yeah, uh, the TSA numbers have been um, suspect for, for some time. Um, what they, they typically do is... Uh, either hand somebody at the quote end of the line a yellow card and and wait and do this supposed to do it you know once an hour or however often, um, or they uh, monitor people through the video surveillance of oh the guy in the in the brown shirt will follow him until he gets uh, to the uh, you right to the ID checker, um, and but that's not realistic the, the, because
0: you're still going to be standing in line to get through security.
3: Right. Right. This, this goes back somewhat um, a, a long time ago the TSA made a distinction early on between lanes and lines. Um, <laughs> if, I'm <laughs> laughing yes, no, it's only the government could do this um, so and, and there actually was a um, practical reason to do this. Lines are um, defined as the 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 weight to get up to the ID checker. And and those are different because actually the airline has some control over the lines. Remember, we used to have um, preferred preferred lanes for um, uh, elite-level frequent flyers or first-class passengers or things like that. And people said, well, how could the government play favorites? Well, the government said, all right, those lines, that's up to the airline. Once you get to our ID checker, now you're under our control now you're in lanes, and lanes are different. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's silly, but um, you're absolutely right, uh, the wait time numbers. Now, some airports are installing their own systems, um, not trusting the TSA. Uh, the New York airports uh, recently just, just did this. Um, but it's, it's the, you know, they're going to suffer from the same fallacy um, because they're going to measure the time that it takes you to get to the ID check.
0: I know it's it's so it, look it's so easy to fix. How long does it take me from the time I stand in the line to the time I clear and get my carry-on bag and go to my gate? That's the realistic measurement. Not, everything else is garbage.
3: Yeah, and you could even argue the time you spend putting your belt back on and putting your shoes on, and all that's part of the experience and uh, and should be recorded.
0: <laughs> I love it. Part of the experience, yes, one to yep. remember. But here's the, look until they change the rule. And if you guys are on, anybody listening to the show who's got that TSA app about your estimated waiting times, do yourself a favor. Whatever number they're giving it to you, at the very least, double it, and at least you can budget accordingly so you don't miss your plane.
3: You know, the TSA app suffers from a lot of um, (laughs) shortcomings. Uh, A lot of those wait times are are crowdsourced. Um, So uh, somebody uh, shows up at LaGuardia and runs through and and, and has, has to actually go into the app and and post the wait time. Um, very few people do that. So uh, the amount of data that, that's actually collected is very small from, from the crowdsourcing.
0: Now let's go to your story. Enough with the TSA definition of line and waiting time. Uh, your piece, six ways to improve air travel instantly. Okay, you got my attention, Scott. Number one.
3: Yeah, so so we wanted to be practical about this too. This was This wasn't, you know, everybody gets first class seats for $10 or um, you know, the TSA gets honest about wait times, um, th- these were, were practical, realistic changes. And the first one was reduce or eliminate change fees. Um, change fees drive people crazy, and the, the punishment does not fit the crime. Um, one airline, Southwest, does not charge change fees. Um, they point out that, that most any airline today has very sophisticated tools um, to forecast no-shows. Um, and so the the notion that you have to have this change fee to discourage no-shows is ridiculous. Um, airlines, when you when you do change, you pay a penalty already because you're you're more than likely going to end up in a higher fare. The airline more than likely is going to resell the seat that you've already paid for with a non-refundable ticket, uh, and and so the, the the idea that the airline needs further protection. With a two hundred dollar domestic change fee or up to a four hundred dollar international change fee, um, it's just reali- unrealistic, and it and it um, really discourages people from travel.
0: But it's a huge profit maker for the airlines.
3: Well, it it is and it isn't. Um, uh, I think you can you can Southwest certainly makes the case, and I think it it would be true at other airlines that if you made it easier to buy the product, people would would buy the product more. And I heard when we did this, I heard from a lot of travelers who say, I get in the car and drive on short trips. I, you know, I, I don't – people aren't buying the flexible full fare thing. Um, even businesses today have realized that that they could come out way ahead buying cheaper fares and paying the change fee when they need to pay the change fee. Um, but it, it doesn't change buying behavior um, it, it does discourage it. It doesn't yeah. encourage people to pay uh, pay the top price, um, so they get that flexibility. They, now, your airline, next I, it,
0: your next item up for bids on the prices right here is one that I hit home for me, because I used to benefit from it all the time, and that is something. And we have to we'll have to explain what it means. But bring back interlining.
3: Yeah, and I think this is a serious issue. Uh, so interlining is when uh, airline has a problem. And cancels your flight um, they could put you on another airline where, where they have an interlining agreement um, and they and typically the airline pays a, a deeply discounted price to send you over there the other airlines going to send people the other way and uh, and they settle up each month and it it more or less works out um, but airlines have have really stopped doing this um, it used to be required by the government when the industry was was regulated um, after it got deregulated, the airlines kept doing it um, and, and will tell you in their contract of carriage that they, they still do it, but now they only do it at their discretion. Um, the very top customers will get this benefit, um, but others yeah. won't. And you can end up sitting stranded for two or three days now um, while uh, another airline may have empty seats leaving from the airport that might accommodate you.
0: Sure, and those who remember my books remember I was the guy who publicized and (laughs) made popular Rule 240, um, which which was that rule. Then they changed it to Rule 12020, and now they're just basically bastardized the whole thing. And as you said, Scott, you have to be a visiting sheik to get that uh, kind of interlining agreement because it doesn't work anymore. Absolutely. All right, the next one you had is uh, one that I never even thought about, but I think I like it. Bring Back Coupon Books?
3: Yeah, I, I think this is a really interesting idea. Um, look, um, airfares have have really swung to the to the average. Um, every, the, the, you know, there are no more two thousand dollar domestic airfares that people are buying. Um, we're all paying in in the same kind of range, um, and so I think you know air, airlines have have been have tried this in the past, and it hasn't worked because they can. Yield manage um, higher revenue, but but I'm not sure that's true anymore. And you could have a coupon book on a particular route for off-peak fares or for peak yeah. travel times or things like that. Charge the average price. I'm happy exactly. to pay you the average price um, for the for the route. So, and you know what? So the airline comes out yeah. fine.
0: I love that. I, I go back to the days of PSA. I used to have a coupon book. I, they bought tickets in bulk, and it yeah. and it worked.
4: I'm
5: feeling we're not in Kansas anymore.
0: The show and also on our television show the travel detective he's the editor-in-chief of travel weekly the honorable why did i say that arnie <laughs> westman <laughs>
1: hi hi mr sir greenberg how are you okay
0: i am fine sir uh you know it's interesting that uh, you just came back from something called the american logic uh, lodging investment Su- summit alis uh, i've been to that before And it's not something that most of my listeners would go to, and they'd have no reason to go to it. But from a business perspective, you learn a lot there. And, you know, I'm confronted with some statistics that are a little staggering. You know, Marriott opening up one new hotel every 14 hours, Hilton opening up one new hotel every 16 hours. And these are hotel brands that have 32 different brands at at, or 33, perhaps at, at Marriott. And uh, I mean, a number of them, of course, at Hilton. 14
1: at Hilton. I think it's yeah. 18 at Wyndham. And, you know, so this it was interesting. So brand, this this investment summit is a place where there's like 3,000 people, and they're either, you know, uh, executives looking to buy brands. They're owners. They're investors who want to, you know, franchise a hotel brand or or looking among several brands which one they want to choose for their hotel. And, of course, the brands themselves are there. So it was really an interesting moment when uh, Ken Green, he's the president of the Americas for the Radisson Hotel Group, which is a collection of eight brands, said, "There's a need for brands to die. There's just too many of them." And now, of course, he wasn't suggesting there was time for any of his brands to die, but it <laughs> it course. is a he's he's got eight brands. He's up against Marriott is is thirty some Hilton. You know, in the in the in the mid teens, and the people themselves at the summit were confused themselves. It was really an interesting moment. Also, a different. I went to another seminar. The seminar was called brand selection in the area of proliferation and consolidation. And the uh, moderator of a panel, who was uh, with PwC, and he put on everyone's chair a piece of paper that had eight logos from eight different hotel companies and then descriptions on the other side of the page. And he said, everyone, take a pen, draw a line from the logo to the description of the brand. This is about 100-plus hotel professionals in the room. He picked them up. He offered a prize, if anyone got it right. They They were collected and tallied, and nobody got them all right. No one. Well,
0: that tells you a lot.
1: Yeah. So and these are people who this is their job, they're shopping for brands, they're selling brands and they and they can't do it. So there is by the way a reason why hotel brands don't die. And and you know this Peter, the hotels when you go to a Marriott hotel, it's not owned by Marriott. You go to a Hilton hotel, it's not owned by Hilton. There's a group of owners, they sign very long-term management contracts where they invite Marriott to come in, lots of advantages for the owner. It, first of all, helps them distribute uh, if, they're, if they're just a hotel you know, in, in Omaha competing against a lot of hotels in Omaha. They have no way of getting in front of a, a travel advisor in Albany, New York, who's got someone going there unless they're part of a larger group. So there's, there's real advantages to being with a brand. So when Marriott bought Starwood everyone was speculating which brands would they kill because there's some overlap. There's some brands that are similar, and and everyone assumed that whatever the best performing brand was, that one would survive, the other one would die. But here we are two years post-acquisition, and no brands have been identified as being on the block. And the, the reality is the owners can say no. I, I have a. I'm a I'm, a Radis- I'm not a renaissance there, I'm a renaissance. Let's say in, in Marriott, and if Marriott wanted to merge that with the Starwood brand, it, the Renaissance owner says no. I've I've got. To, I've invested in, in everything you've asked me to invest in to to live up to the brand. I don't want to go. So it's very hard to kill a brand unless the brand itself just dies because customers don't want it, and then the owners can't wait to move.
0: Yep. So you know what? Despite they say that brands are gonna die, the point is where is your brand loyalty beyond a certain number of, of brand names if you can't even you know, define that brand? And, and my guess is we will see consolidation and we will see some brands leave the portfolios, not to the extent that people were expecting, but we will see some lose and others gain. If
5: you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a
0: passenger. My next guest, one of our regulars on the show, is the editor at large for National Geographic Traveler, and he literally travels all over the world. is Christ, how are you, sir?
6: Hi, Peter. I'm just fine, and uh, greetings to all your listeners.
0: And greetings today from Belize.
6: Yes, you, you actually found me in Belize, so if you hear some, uh, I'm in a small fishing village on the coast called Placencia. If you hear a uh, rooster crow or a dog bark, uh, that's why.
0: Not a problem. So, bottom line is, every time I talk to you, it's part of your mandate, it's your mantra on sustainable travel. Uh, why Belize?
6: Well, you know, Belize is a pretty special place in terms of reef and rainforest. Uh, Cultural heritage wise, uh, Belize has the single largest number of Mayan ruins. Most people think Mexico or they might think Guatemala. Actually, it's Belize. So you have a big cultural heritage aspect on that. Then, of course, you have the rainforest itself with a high biodiversity area. Belize has the only jaguar reserve on the planet, a very important breeding area. And of course, what most people probably think of first is the second largest barrier reef in the world after australia's great barrier reef all of that in a very tiny country smaller than rhode island
0: and when you talk about the barrier reef there we're talking about the blue hole too
6: that's right and uh, jacques cousteau of course made the uh, blue hole very very famous back in the 19 late 60s i think it was uh when he dived it for the first time and that's become a bucket list item for many of the uh divers in the world
0: you know you, know, you take a country like Belize where I mean you know I think it's safe to say their tourism is is a huge part of their GDP and yet the words responsible tourism uh, you know you I first heard the words responsible tourism applied believe it or not to Costa Rica where a majority of the country is national forest they have no standing army they, they concentrate on education and health and they you know I think it's something like seven I may be exaggerating here you'll know this it's something like 70% of Costa Rica's national forest.
6: Not, not quite 70%, but the over 40%, if I recall correctly, of the country is protected forest. then that, that's really quite exceptional. And, of course, Costa Rica uh, has been a bit of the poster child for, for ecotourism. Costa Rica was the, the not the first country in the world. It was actually Kenya that pioneered some of the early ideas of ecotourism. But Costa, uh, Costa Rica brought it to world attention in 1980 when the Tico Times, the national newspaper, published a story calling for a new environmental vision for tourism.
0: Exactly. Now, are other countries in the region like Belize following suit?
6: Yes. Uh, you know, certainly you have uh, Mexico just to the north of us here in Mexico is doing some good things on the Riviera Maya uh, when it comes to sustainable tourism. Um, and Panama, actually where I'll be heading next, is doing some very good things. Over, I met with the previous, well, not the previous, but the will be the outgoing president, President Berea who is a young man and uh, dynamic and really sees sustainable tourism as key for the future of protecting that country's resource and creating revenue in terms of providing jobs and opportunities for people. And in Belize, of course, this has been going on now for a while. Uh, Belize embarked on sustainable tourism planning uh, over a decade ago. Now, does that mean everything's just hunky-dory, as uh, I used to say in New Jersey when I was growing up? Uh, no, it doesn't. It means that all countries, in fact, the whole planet, is facing challenges. And as you know, Peter, yourself, uh, tourism has grown to become truly a monolithic, a giant industry. Uh, There are now uh, 1.4 billion tourists. We're on our way to 2 billion. And the question is, how do we make sure they have a positive impact? And in the case of Belize, the goal is to channel tourism dollars into helping to protect the natural areas, not conquer the destination, but enhance it and continue to support it in its uniqueness and authenticity.
0: Although when I talked to ministers of tourism going back, let's say, 5, 10, 15 years ago, their obsession, if you will, was with the numbers. How do we increase the number of visitors? What's their average uh, stay going to be? What's their average spend going to be? And that was their only concern. They wanted to show you that, you know, we had more people than we did last year, next year we're going to have more people than we did this year. Has that philosophy changed at all to be more realistic in terms of sustainable travel? You know, it's
6: interesting. A lot of times people ask me, so, you know, where did the idea of sustainable tourism come from? And and part of me almost chuckles, because you could almost say, well, actually, those tourism ministers, they're the ones where it was created. Why? Because of the very thing you just said. Sustainable tourism, which is defined by three principles, environmentally friendly practices, all that good green stuff that we hear and recycling, supporting the protection of culture, And protection of nature, wildlife, that's another key part. And, of course, benefiting local people, because we know when local people's lives are improved from tourism, they become activists to support conservation and celebrating their cultural heritage. So my point is this, Peter. All those numbers have added up to a crisis. And that crisis has been responded to by this movement called sustainable tourism pushing back against it. So this whole idea that tourism is measured for success by how many numbers, and the more numbers the better, is a fallacy. It's not volume, it's about value. And it's about value to local people's lives, to conservation, and protecting our cultural treasures.
0: And you have to change the definition of the word value. You know, if you, if you look at Rwanda... You know, you had all the poachers with the wild gorillas. They had to convince the poachers that the gorillas were worth more to them alive than dead, and change the entire metric of how you basically approached that part of tourism. Well, that
6: that's exactly right. What we know is that success in tourism isn't based on an ever-growing number of tourists coming to a place. It's based on the impact those tourists have. And when that impact is positive, that's where the real magic happens. That's at the nexus, the core of what sustainable tourism, or the heart of sustainable tourism is about. Riding along in my
7: automobile My baby beside me at
8: the wheel Cruising and playing the radio
9: With no particular place to go
0: Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. I was drawn to the, to the book by my next author simply because I'm also an addict about this particular location. If you know when to go and where to go and sometimes even how to go, the name of the book, First Spritz is Free, Confessions of Venice Addicts, edited by my guest Kathleen Ann Gonzalez. Hi, Kathleen. Hi. So what made you write the book?
5: Well, uh, I have been in love with Venice since 1996 and, uh, you know, just have become part of this great community of other people who are in love with the city as well. Uh, and hearing all of their stories, I realized these were stories that really were worth sharing. So um, I just contacted a number of people, and that number kept growing, and I received uh, 35 really fantastic stories to put together into a book. Uh, we also kind of had the goal of giving the book away and just sharing our love with the city and then taking any profits that there might be from the book and giving them to organizations that help to support the city. So it really is just a love affair
0: all around. <laughs> it is, but I have to, you know, there's, there's a caveat with a love affair. You have to know when to go, uh, and you have to, there are certain months of the year you couldn't pay me to go to Venice. Um, and, <laughs> right. and I'm sure you know those months. Uh, let me see if we'll guess it right. Would it be July and August? Yes, it would. Let's move on. Okay. Uh, because in July and August, the bridge of size is the bridge of thighs. Um, and, and it just doesn't work for me. I'm a big fan of February and November. Simply because I'm not there to go to suntan. I'm there to experience the culture. I'm there to not see the crowds. I'm there to be able to walk the streets without being hit with selfie sticks um, and to really experience what Venice is all about.
5: I agree with you there. Uh, but, you know, I there are a couple things about the summer month that I do love. Uh, and I'm sort of stuck going in the summer often because I'm a, a school teacher. So that's when I can go. But one of the great things about the summer month is the local sagre, which are the sort of neighborhood fest and some of those I've just fallen in love with and I go back every year uh, and try and experience life alongside more Venetians than alongside the tourists and those happen in the summer.
0: Well okay then you're bolder than I am <laughs> <laughs> but for me you know I, I have a routine and and my routine is not just the traditional routine, although some of it is. You know, I love having breakfast on the rooftop of the Daniele. I mm-hmm. I, I used to love going out to Lido for lunch, but they closed the Excelsior. Um, and and for dinner, so now at lunch I just walk the streets and 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 find little canal areas that I can go in there and have you know and have a wonderful lunch. Uh, although I will tell you, you're going to laugh at me. I do one touristy thing in Venice every time. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, you're going to laugh. I know you're going to laugh. I I go I go to Harry's Bar and I. I walk in for only one dish, the Tagliolini Gratinata. Yes, and I, and I and and you can ask them to make it without the ham. It's a very rich dish. Uh you're gonna basically want a nap afterwards, but it's great. <laughs> and then what do you do when you walk out of Harry's? I mean you're right there. Just go to the dock and get on Vaporetto number one and off you go. hmm
5: and, and then you the see whole the, Grand Canal opens up in front of you.
0: It does. It does it every time. And for me, that's that's a big difference. What? but let's talk about the stuff that's not in the brochures for a second. You know, Mm -hmm. what's what's the one place that you always go to that you're not going to find in the brochure or the guidebook that really stimulates you and inspires you?
5: Uh, I have a couple of favorite things. Um, One, it's in some of the guidebooks, but still not many people know the Museo Fortuni very well. And the Fortuni is this uh, old sort of half-crumbling palazzo that's been changed into an art venue, and some of the upper floors, the walls are still unplastered, and they just have really great curated exhibits there, so I love doing that, and I I actually like going out to the cemetery kind of get away from the crowd, see what the Venetians were like in past centuries. That's, well, that cemetery,
0: isn't that cemetery on its own island, isn't it?
5: It is, the island of San Michele.
0: I pass yeah. it all the time. Uh, now, can I tell you where I get in trouble? I sure. get in trouble because if I fly into the airport, inevitably, I end up on one of the water taxis that's going to cost you $125 just to get to Venice. Mm-hmm. But the, but very yeah. few things beat that experience of coming into Venice on one of those beautiful wooden boats.
5: Right. <laughs> Well, there is the Ali Laguna, which is a a ferry boat, not too big, but uh, for about 30 euros, you can still arrive in Venice by boat. And um, it usually goes by a couple of the other islands in the lagoon, so you still get that experience, but at a little bit better price.
0: So you can do it. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm see that's what we need we're talking to to kathleen and gonzalez who edited first spritz is free confessions of venice addicts a, a well worth reading because there are a number of secrets in here you need to know which will allow you to go to a place that is confronted right now with the issues of overtourism
5: hello and welcome to alaska flight 438 we'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft the most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants please look at one now
0: My next guest knows a little bit about travel. He founded airfarewatchdog.com, which still is one of my go-to sites just to be able to figure out if the airlines are updating their airfares 250,000 times a day, uh, it might be finally you know, a good idea to figure out if you get clued into that so you stay on top of it. His name, George Hoboken, who's now the Fly Guy columnist for USA Today. Hey, George. Hey, Peter. So here's my question. There are more people gonna be traveling this year than ever before. 1.4 billion people will cross an international border, uh, and that's a huge increase. Uh, You have 130 million Chinese among them traveling. You have Marriott opening up one new hotel. I'm not exaggerating here. One new hotel every 14 hours. And you have Hilton opening up one new hotel every 16 hours. Uh, You have every shipyard uh, at full capacity, producing cruise lines of every size and pedigree. And that's out to like 2024. Uh, So you have, for lack of a better definition, an explosion of travel an explosion in numbers, and at the same time, an explosion in capacity. So having said all that, how bad are we off or how good are we off?
8: I think it depends on, on where you go and your reasons for traveling. And, and that brings up the question, why do we travel? Why are all these people traveling? What What's motivating them? I, I have a friend who's a, a fairly influential Instagrammer. He's actually a, a cor- corporate uh, finance guy, but he likes, to, he likes to take pictures. He has about 70,000 Instagram followers. I, I went to... Um, to scotland with him for two weeks scotland and england and we took trains and we drove by the way driving is a nightmare on the left side of the road in scotland so i suggest um you definitely think twice about it but uh, uh, if
0: i can just jump in there george yes here's my rule if you drive on the left side of the road, you may not be in an accident, but you're going to create a few.
8: Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, I did, too. I t- take out the full coverage on that rental car because I, I definitely needed it. I, I did some damage to uh, one of the side mirrors on a, <laughs> on a, on a wall. But I, it was yeah. Avis. I bought the uh, full coverage from Avis, and I just gave him the keys and, and drove off at the airport. But anyway, my friend, the Instagrammer, um, so we were j- j- taking the train through some of the most beautiful uh, Scottish countryside. And I was in the window seat, and he was in the aisle seat, and he didn't even look out. He was posting photographs that he had taken previously on his Instagram account. And I'm looking out the window, pointing out this beautiful scenery. He's saying, huh? I mean, so that's one reason people travel. But I think the why I travel, and I read this book recently, How to Travel, by uh, Alain de Baton, who's a, kind of a pop um, uh, philosopher. He says that every destination has a character, and it emphasizes and promotes a particular uh, aspect of human nature. The destination we are drawn to reflects an underlying sense of what is currently missing in our lives. And I think what's missing in our lives right now is civility. I think there's so much incivility going on politically and socially, not just in the United States, but, but everywhere. And that's why I like to go to Japan. Japan has civility down to a fine art. I went to a post office in Tokyo recently, and I I bought some um, postcard stamps because this is one of my 19th century uh, characteristics. I still send postcards with pretty stamps. So I I go in the post office. First of all, they say, welcome to the post office as you enter the door. And uh, Uh I said, I want some pretty stamps. And he showed me some pretty stamps, and I gave him the money, and I was waiting for him to hand me back the stamps. Oh, no, they don't do that there. He carefully tore the stamps along the perforations. Wetted the stamps, carefully placed them on my postcards, mail, put them in the, in the bin for mailing, and then thanked me. That's Japan.
0: <laughs> That's and you Japan. walked out of there so humbled.
8: I mean, look, I was in the, the uh, Japan Airlines lounge on my way back. And it was a, a woman carrying a small baby who started to cry. And when you're in that lounge, they have a, a frequent announcements. The only announcements they make is, please, if you are using your cell phone to make a conversation, we have some lovely telephone booths that don't have telephones in them, but they're a telephone booths, and that's where you go to make your call. So this, this woman had a baby who getting a finicky and starting to cry. She brought the baby into the phone booth so that it wouldn't upset the other customers. I was in Washington, D.C. not too long ago, sitting in an empty terminal by, by a gate, and this guy sat down next to me just a few seats away. Why? I have no idea. Maybe there was a plug, too for his device or something. And then he starts playing a video at full volume without headphones.
0: <laughs> Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. You know, we've survived. (laughs) (laughs) The most heavily marketed holiday of the year in my book, uh, Valentine's Day. Uh, Americans spending billions, you heard me right, billions just on roses. And then let's not talk about chocolate and champagne and honeymoon packages, or actually just Valentine's packages at hotels. Um, So now that we're, you know, we're past that, maybe it's time to get ready for the next one the proper way. And who better to know all about that than my next guests. They've actually celebrated, and I'm not kidding, uh, the World's Longest Honeymoon. Uh, they're the founders of Honey Trek and the authors of National Geographic's Ultimate Journeys for Two, Ann and Mike Howard. Welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having us. Great
0: to be here. Yeah, and you guys left on your honeymoon <laughs> on January twenty-second, two 2012, and since then, you've explored something like 835 regions in 43 states and 56 countries across all seven continents. So part of your honeymoon, I, suppo- I assume, also included the Antarctic? It
2: did, and one of the most spectacular
0: places on the planet. Oh, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more, but uh, let's face it, difficult to keep the roses fresh there.
2: True, true. It's, um, yeah, and, you know, at Valentine's, you're so right about being incredibly commercial, but similar with honeymoons where people build up these specific events, but really feel like, you know, honeymoon is sort of a, at the start of a lifetime of travel, and rather than focusing your travel together on this one event, have it be your first big adventure and make travel more a part of your life. We, when we were planning our honeymoon, realized, you know, when are we going to get to all these places and travel these experiences in our lifetime? If we don't start now, let's make a plan and um, became a trip around the world that was going to be one year and now it's
0: seven. Well, you know, you mentioned about this, you know, this one special trip called the honeymoon, it gets back to a sort of a deranged definition of a bucket list because, you know, people think, oh, this is going to be the be all end all trip. You know, that's not just, you know, commemorating our wedding, but after this, you know, we'll be working nine to five and, you know, punching a clock and that's the end of our lives. And you're right. It should be the beginning, not the end.
8: Absolutely.
0: So in all of these travels, and, and obviously talk about extending the honeymoon, you've you've, uh, you've taken it to a new definition. How long are you going to keep doing this?
9: Uh, there's no real end in sight. I mean, that's definitely a question people ask, but it's kind of just become our new life. I mean, with Honey Trek and authoring books, we've been able to, to fund our travels, and we've just kind of become, we, we started this trip thinking, like you alluded to before, okay, we have this bucket list, we need to see the Great Wall of China, we need to hike to Machu Picchu, we need to scuba dive the Great Barrier Reef, and all these things. And then once we got on the road and started meeting these real people and uh, hearing their stories and sharing them through our website and social channel, we just became more addicted to like meeting more locals, and that's kind of kept us invigorating and hearing all the people that were inspiring to try something different and get beyond that 10-day all-inclusive and really get out there and explore the world has been uh, has been addictive.
0: Can I ask a stupid question? Where's home?
9: No home. We, the last time we've had an apartment key or a house key was December 2011, and it used to be Hoboken, New Jersey, and we've literally been trying traveling every day since.
0: And you've reviewed over, what, 200 romantic hotels around the world. I have to ask you this. What's your definition, before we get into specifics, what's your definition of a romantic hotel?
2: I do like me to say that because for us, you know, it, it it is about experiential travel and sort of the, like you said, the, the cliched honeymoon package. It's about, you know, having real experiences together. And so actually romantic. Adventure is very romantic. We've done the whole range of, um, you know, like going to, you know, to Antarctica and, and you walking with penguins, and stand up paddleboarding with icebergs. I mean, that to me, getting your adrenaline rushing together actually can be quite romantic. But also, it's the boutique level where you you know it's more intimate spaces, and also where you have a chance to connect with the person who thinks to dream up these places. We actually are writing a second book right now, about the best glamping destinations in North America, which has been a whole crazy journey, because um, it's really about the people who who dream up these magical places and want to share that special piece of their corner of the world with guest. And that became, um, you know, just as romantic as, as, you know, the four seasons.
0: Sure. Well, you know, definition of honeymoon notwithstanding, let's get back to a larger definition of that I've always used as a metric. And that is, if you really want to know if you can be with somebody, just travel with them. Because what the world throws at you just in the process of travel, basically tests your patience, it tests your emotions, it tests your resilience, and if you can survive a weekend with okay. a supposed significant other, there's hope for you when you travel.
2: Now, no, no. There really should be a pre-honeymoon. Go on a long trip together and see if you make it before <laughs> you decide not. That makes way more sense to me. But probably really, if you can make it, he teaches you to be a team. Like We are an unshakable team. We have dealt with all sorts of things and, you know, hitchhiking on banana trucks and having you know complete meltdowns places but we know how to roll with the punches and it's all about like keeping laughing and I swear our best stories stem from our worst experiences because we keep that positive attitude. Um you know all the stories about oh the you know the rose petals on the bed no one wants to hear that they want to hear about you know hitchhiking on that banana truck. So it's um you know keeping it light keeping it positive and having each other's back. And
9: I also feel like yeah. when you when you push each other outside of that comfort zone and go to a place that might be a little foreign or kind of get out of your guidebook. And visit a city that you've never heard of before. You, doing that together kind of like makes you this unit, this team on the road. And when you do it successfully, and you have an amazing meal, or you you did a homestay, and you come out of that, you're like, wow, we did that together. As opposed to you know spending a lot of money and then fighting over that, or missing a bus or whatever. Like doing something together that's outside your comfort zone can really strengthen that bond.
0: Exactly. We're talking with Ann and Mike Howard, the founders of Honey Trek and the authors of National Geographic's Ultimate Journeys for Two. Of course, the participants in the world's longest Honeymoon. I always say to people, you know, somebody will tell me, "Oh, I just met the one, the most wonderful woman, or I just met the greatest guy, and they've been, you know, they're madly in love, and they've been going out for maybe two or three months. So we already know sex has happened, and then they take their first trip together, and I just know that when they come back, they're either going to be together for life or they're calling the attorneys." <laughs> Right, I mean, that's travel is the great determinator for how you're going to be able to be together anywhere at any time. So the fact that you guys have been together uh, on this honeymoon since 2012, we're talking over seven years, is amazing. These guys got married, took off on their honeymoon in January of 2012 and have never stopped. Some might call them fugitives from justice (laughs) or they might even be in the witness relocation program. They could qualify for both, but no, they've just figured out a way to just keep traveling around the world. And we're talking, you know, all seven continents. No home, constantly living out of a suitcase. So, guys, let's talk about that suitcase. When you first started traveling, what did you always pack, and that then you realized, don't need this, never going to take it again?
2: Right. I was freaking out about all the wrong things. Like, I was obsessing about shoes forever and realized that, you know, three pairs, that's all you need. You got to go, you know, a dressy pair that's very versatile still for walking because you're always walking when you travel. Flip-flop, the universal shoe, and a hiking boot, and then you're you're set for most things. But, you know, we, now that we've basically thrown out everything we own, we sold as much as we could before we left, you kind of realize you just love your favorite T-shirt, a comfy dress, wear the things that make you feel good, that, that you feel personally comfortable in. Don't be doing the zip-off pants and dry-wicking everything. It's the idea that you should feel like you when you travel.
0: You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because I'm a big fan of less is more, but my friends laugh at me because I usually overpack, but not clothes. I just take my mail with me. But <laughs> and, then I'm, and then I'm hoping that by the time I get back, you know, I've, I've lightened the load. But for females, for the women travelers out there, you know, you talk about obsessing with shoes. For me, uh, I tell my women friends, and I'm giving them the male perspective so you know I'm wrong, but I tell my women <laughs> friends, you know what? Pair of jeans, one little black dress goes with everything. You know, your favorite walking shoes and your favorite dress-up shoes, and just the basics, and you'll be okay.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I, I love a good long necklace and a scarf and a pair of earrings, and you know, that you can also, you know, accessorize on the road. Those are the best souvenirs are
9: pieces of jewelry that you can wear forever. So, y- leave Yeah, but here's that. the problem.
0: You're not buying anything on the road, are you? Because you got no place to send them.
9: So true. We don't buy much, but yeah. But that is a fun thing for people who do pack light I mean one thing you'll be able to go carry on which means your luggage will never get lost you'll be quicker through airports you know the airports and getting out of them and then also if you realize you do need something well, what better souvenir than a new shirt from Morocco or you know a pair of shoes from Thailand like something that's cultural that you can bring home with you and it kind of solves the need when you're in the country
0: you're right so I asked you the same question I asked Ann Mike and that is what did you initially pack that you said oh forget this I'm not ever taking this again hmm.
9: I would say two pair of jeans is overkill even you know even if you're going to Europe which was the the latter part of our uh you know
0: round one of
9: round one of, of the trip and then one one tip that I'll give just a, a plug which I give whenever I can of things that you need to have in your pack is a SteriPen water purifier we've been now sick uh just under seven years through 55 countries without drinking a single bottle of disposable plastic you know a disposable bottle of water um in every country we use this SteriPen we've never been sick from water and I can't plug that enough for your audience. Uh, to do our part for the environment and these local communities.
0: You know, I've actually used that in some countries around the world, and I, I use it reluctantly because I didn't trust it. And you know what? It works. It does.
2: We drank out of the Amazon River almost as a challenge to see if we die on the spot. And if you can drink the Amazon, River,
0: <laughs> you can drink. It. <laughs> Wait a minute. You drank from the Amazon? Now I know why you've been traveling for, for 300,000 miles. No, I'm just kidding. It's uh, superpowers. <laughs> I know. Give, you've been given superpowers. Well, look, we're not forgetting just the packing. Let's talk about, you know, your mode of travel. You went on a, you, what? You did 39,000 miles in an RV?
2: Yeah, because the first five years we were truly out of a backpack. And then we're like, how could we have a little bit more stability (laughs) but still be moving? We're like, oh an RV, suddenly it made perfect sense that so we could have a closet on the move, a mode of transit, and a place of shelter all rolled into one. And
9: our parents laugh. They say, like, you two are the only couple who could buy an RV as a form of stability, right? That's like <laughs> <a joke. laughs>
0: No, I get it. Here's the thing. If you have a, a space, you tend to fill it. Did you do that in the RV? Was it all of a sudden jammed with tchotchkes after a while? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, we were coming from, from from like a backpack, so it seemed wildly space. I mean, we're sharing a closet two adults, and it's like basically
9: a broom closet at best and it's only a 20 foot it's a 1985 Toyota Sun Raider so it's kind of this vintage RV it's got very little storage so we're pretty <laughs> much fitting about two backpacks worth of clothes in there and
2: oh trust me we use what used to be like the radiator space for shoe storage the uh oven is also our wine cellar I mean you just have to be great. <laughs>
0: And Do you still have that? We do. Yep. We're uh, we're
9: just about to uh, we're finishing up a house sit, um, which we can talk about in a bit. But we're finishing up a house sit, and then we're going to drive it across country for a wedding we've got to attend in Arizona, and then the goal is to drive it all the way up to the Alaska, last frontier, the last frontier, and do some exploring up there later this summer.
0: And we'll talk about that in a second. As you mentioned, the house sitting, and for people who are looking for economical ways and alternatives to hotels, you found that one too.
2: Absolutely, and not we. You could think about oh, it says free lodging, and that's clearly a benefit this you don't, um uh, but it's the idea of you're an instant local. We've basically you're invited in someone's home, they want to make sure you have an incredible time, they meet introduce you to your, their friends, they tell you the greatest restaurants and bars, and suddenly you sort of have the keys to a castle versus being an outsider, you're an instant insider, and we've done it in Croatia, Portugal, Mexico, Seattle. It's a great way to test drive a city you might actually want to live in someday, too.
0: Right, and the, and the authorities haven't found you yet. No,
2: we did ruin our witness protection program. Now they're looking for us. But I,
0: thanks. You, and, and By the way, speaking of house you also t- you also do what took care of a farm in Portugal?
9: Yeah, we did that. And being vegetarian, uh, it was great to be there in August at the height of their harvest season. It was an acre and a half of the, all veggie farms and fruit trees. And they left and they said, "We don't need any vegetables when we come home. Just keep the plants alive." So we ate like crazy. And, and about the house sitting thing, if any of your audience wants to learn, if, if over on our site we have a little detailed description uh, up in the navigation of how to get into house sitting, what websites to join, how to build a profile, because it's not as easy as going on a website, like, say, an Airbnb and saying, oh, I want to go to Portugal and sit on a farm. Book? No, you need to apply and you need to build your resume. so The
2: villa in Costa Rica with two infinity pools has a lot of applications, as you can imagine. So you kind of have to learn to set
0: yourself apart. Now, big question for me. You know, it's one thing to to wow me with the numbers, right? 835 regions, 43 states, 56 countries, all seven continents. After all this, what was the one location you went to that you had the highest hopes for that absolutely sucked? And What? what was the one and what was the one that you figured, why were even here and you fell in love with it?
9: Well, I'll give one on the uh, on the suck. I mean, it, it, and it didn't suck, but uh, but it probably, you know, didn't live up to the expectations as we had them because it's a country that gets a lot of hype and and a ton of expectations. And being a photographer, you know, I went into it with that mindset. And Vietnam was more challenging than we expected. And I think partly because we didn't go with a tour. I think most of your listeners would probably visit there with a tour where a lot of doors get open for you and things get smoothed out. But we there, you know, solo, and I would recommend it to other people, but I would say, be cautious and be prepared. You know, no one's going to harm you at all. It's not scary, but it's a very, ironically, capitalist country, and people are very hungry for that tourist dollar in some unscrupulous ways. So that kind of rubbed us, but it rubs us so wrong that we want to get back there and do it again and, and, and see if that repeats itself. But that was kind of my one that... Uh, and, you is, know, at the same time resist.
2: going local, fix that whole scenario. At the end of our Vietnam experiences that a month long, we volunteered and taught English in a Red Zhao tribal village in, in way northern Vietnam and it redeemed everything. We connected well, so with locals on our, our journey and um, and we'll never forget that. So. Okay, you
0: know, so, so, so let's, th- flip, let's flip that over. What was the one place that you had no expectations of that blew you away?
2: I would say Idaho because, you know, it's known for potatoes, yet they're hiding these incredible, the Sawtooth Mountains and they've got, you know, Craters of the Moon National Monument and they have a very diverse landscape and it in ways felt like the best of the Pacific Northwest and the Rockies smashed together without all the people. So we were Not down to last
0: All right. And is there a place that you would never go back to?
2: Well, the world is so big. We kind of, as much as we love sunny places, there's a huge world out there, and we're just driven to
9: keep exploring.
0: That's a nice politically correct answer. <laughs> 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 Everybody.
9: We wouldn't go back anywhere.
0: Well, I feel, I feel the same way, by the way. I, I'd even go back to, to war zones just because at a certain point they're going to get better. All
5: Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant (laughs) $75.63.
0: My next guest, I've been waiting to talk to for a while because he's the director of an amazing new film. But before I tell you the name of the film, and before I tell you the name of my guest, I want to give you a little background here. Uh, I've been going up to British Columbia probably for almost 40 years now. And, you know, I'm always stunned and taken away by the sheer beauty of it, uh, by how much, based on what I thought I knew, Canada has worked to protect the area. uh, By the coastline, I've sailed most of the coastline from Seattle north uh, all the way to Alaska. Um, and uh, it's just tailor-made for a genuine experience with nature. However, my next guest, and thank God he's doing it, has worked very, very hard to protect the endangered rainforest of British Columbia, and in fact, he's done that with his wife, and now that, now I can tell you his name. It's Ian McAllister, and now I can tell you the name of the film. In fact, Ian, why don't you tell him the name of the film?
7: Uh, it's called Great Bear Rainforest.
0: And, you know, you heard my introduction. Most people think, and everything's being relative, of course, that... British Columbia is pristine and not endangered and, and beautifully well-preserved, and guess what? It's still got problems.
7: Yeah, yeah, indeed. And, you know, this, the, the, uh, the film is, uh, you know, very much a celebration of the incredible, beautiful biodiversity that we have on the west coast of Canada you know, it, it features these incredibly rare, rarest bears in the world, spirit bears and bubble net feeding humpback whales and towering rainforests and these salmon fishing wolves and so much more. Um, and they still exist, and that's why we were able to do this film. But for sure, there are, there are problems facing this coastline, and, and perhaps that's part of the motivation to do a film like this.
0: You know, you may, I, I know about brown bears, I know about black bears, because California's got a few of the, of the brown bears, of course, but I've never heard of a spirit bear. What is a spirit bear?
7: Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, Somehow, you know, this uh, rare rainforest, uh, they, what's become known as the Great Bear Rainforest, has harbored this very special coastal black bear population that separated genetically from the rest of the black bears in North America by about 360,000 years ago. And then within that population of bears, there's this recessive gene that produces a pure white offspring. So not a, an albino, uh, not a polar bear, but a pure white black bear. And it's thought there may be only about 200 of them in existence, making them truly one of the rarest bears in the world.
0: And with when when they're that rare, I'm I'm going to assume that they're difficult to find and difficult to spot.
7: They are absolutely. uh, Very few people have seen them Um, and uh, our film crew, we spent three years working on this film. Uh, We were very fortunate to be working closely with uh, the resident First Nations, uh, especially on the Spirit Bear sequence with uh, the Gat First Nation and they of course have a very old understanding of of Spirit Bears and some amazing guides to, to help us along the way but you can travel for years and years through that rainforest and never see a spirit bear.
0: I'm going to also presume that there's a great amount of mythology surrounding that bear.
7: Well, there is. There's there's uh, many stories, many First Nations stories about the origin of of the white bear and um and you know being held over since the time of the glaciers and and but you know it kinda, it's kind of it's it's really interesting because it's a, a pure white bear that suddenly exists in a really quite a dark, you know, wet rainforest and it, it doesn't really make sense but you know, some some uh, scientists think that it actually may also be attributed to uh, providing camouflage for bears when they're feeding or hunting for salmon in the daytime. So, it, so the white fur may have evolved to help them become better salmon fishers.
0: You know, one of the stories in your in your film is told through you know of, of the of the of the native communities and and there's a mythology there, too, about how you live among the animals.
7: Yeah, absolutely, and, and that's such an important part of the film, is really exploring, you know, the relationship of, of grizzly bears to First Nations, and, and the incredible return of herons, herring, and, and everything that, that that follows the herring, you know, the small little silver forage fish, so the humpback whales, and the wolves come out and feed on the herring eggs, and grizzly bears come out and feed on herring eggs, so there's, there's just all these incredible relationships, and and of course, there's no better way to, to talk about those, and to Understand them than through the the resident uh, indigenous people who have been there for over fourteen thousand years.
0: And let's hear it for the herring because without the herring, you're in deep trouble.
7: Yeah, exactly. And I, I'm you know really proud that we were able to start the film off with the explosion of life that that herring bring to the coast, and then we sort of follow everything from there right up to the tops of these massive cedar trees. And so it's a, yeah, it's an incredible coastline, and I think that you know the crew worked so hard on this film, and we've really brought to life to the gorgeous rainforest. And all of the incredible wildlife that exists there to the to the biggest screen of all,
0: one thousand uninhabited islands. Yeah, I
7: know it's amazing when you um you know as we worked on this film, we would set sail for uh, multi-month uh, expeditions at a time, and and you're traveling through, past countless islands and long, long fjords. Some of them over well over a hundred mile long fjords, and you know the the. Water stretches goes from the shoreline right down to six thousand feet below the surface. Uh, there's probably over two thousand separate runs of, of wild salmon. It, you know, it contains the the world's last large remaining intact temperate rainforest. So it's a it's a really big place, and it's it's something that we tried to capture. You know, the grandeur and scale and scope of it in this film. Uh, but it, you know, it wasn't without challenges because it's remote. There's you know, there's no roads there. All of the filming that was done for this um uh, for this IMAX film was all boat based. So so our crews all lived on boats. We spent over 400 days uh, on boats to, to make this film. Uh, but it's a big area. It's over 7 million hectares in size. And that's about the equivalent of over 17 million football fields.
0: You know, when you talk about how you shot it and where you shot it, I was reminded of the BBC series about the world. And, you know, as a photographer, you learn very early on you have to wait for the light. You know, you don't just shoot everything at noon. When you add nature to it and you add wildlife to it, you just don't wait for the light. You have to wait for the tide. You have to wait for the the temperature. You have to wait for other predators. I mean, the waiting here must have just been outrageous.
7: Okay, this is a good way to describe it uh, I can't even begin to tell you how many days in the pouring rain uh, you know we'd be waiting and and uh, oh there's just so many variables you know you're dealing with weather and as you mentioned tide and current and, and we had so many hurricane force wind events and um, oh there's a lots of variables that um, uh, you know make this very challenging but also extremely rewarding when everything comes together and and we had just some incredibly magical moments uh, in the film where you you know all of those elements came together with light and weather and and amazing wildlife uh, showing up and and so it you know, I'm really glad. Uh, you know, Kyle Washington from C-SPAN is the one who sponsored this film, and, and he gave us, you know, three years to do it, and and uh, um, you know was just supportive from the beginning, and it made all the difference when you're when you're doing a wildlife film like this because you just can't, you know, you can't put to script the uh, things that you expect to find. It's it's nature and it's wildest and greatest, and and you just have to be out there and and wait for all of those elements to come together.
0: Well, as Woody Allen once said, half of luck is just showing up and you showed up. But the question that I have to ask you is, after all of this experience, what's the one shot you waited for and waited for and waited for, and then suddenly after X number of days, hours, weeks and months, when you least expected it, you got
7: it? Uh gosh there were so many of them uh, some of them were really challenging to get and and uh just actually took that amount of time to um to, to actually get it and and one example is just trying to get these surf scoters these birds that would dive down to eat herring eggs and it proved to be an extremely challenging shot to get but uh, on the third season we got it and you know there was another time where we were set up to film the Kittasu Hey first nation grizzly bear researchers in the rainforest and we had you know our whole crew was set up ready to film and we thought we were just going to be filming the researchers uh but a grizzly bear walked right through the set and we just of course kept the cameras rolling and you know just and it, you know it's a feature sequence in the film to, to have a grizzly bear come walking right on your set uh it doesn't get better than that so we we had some some beautiful uh fortunate uh magical moment uh, but there was also a lot of a lot of days sitting in the rain waiting for something to show up yeah <laughs>
0: starts to sound like my social life. But the bottom line is, you waited long enough, and you got it, and you were able to tell that story. And to me, that's remarkable that you, that you had the time to do it, that you had the, the resources to do it, and most importantly, that you had the patience to do it. The name of the film again, The Great Bear Rainforest Film, the director, Ian McAllister. Ian, thank you so much for joining us today, and if you want more information on the film, because you gotta go check it out, go to pacificwild.org, and they'll have more information there.
2: You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast on the new location somewhere around the world.
0: If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey.
4: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.